Amen. Good to see you today. This is kind of a big day in a way because at the beginning of this year, we started studying through the Gospel of Matthew, which was the version of the story of Jesus that's written to uh, relate with a Jewish audience. Matthew was Jewish and he wanted to communicate Jesus to a Jewish audience. And so we've been doing that all year and, and today we've come to the final chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. So you can turn over there. Matthew winds up the amazing story of Jesus in this gospel, the first gospel that appears in our Bible. And there are interesting and unique things that are contained in here, um, partly inspired by the audience to which Matthew was writing. But there's much for us to learn. When, when you get to, okay, Jesus died, we saw that in the last chapter, and he rose from the dead, each gospel presents a lot of various details about the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is central to everything that Christianity is. So there certainly had to be something that presented that clearly, and each gospel, in fact, does that. But each of them does it in a unique way. Matthew shares one aspect of the resurrection that the other gospels don't, and it's really a powerful one and really fascinating to me. Now, there are people who look at the four Gospels and say, well, this one says there was two angels and this one was one. There are contradictions. It's easy to take all the Gospels together and make a harmony of all the accounts put together and they make sense. So, but I'm not going to do that for you today. Um, the th fact is, if you have four eyewitnesses and they all say exactly the same thing, they've been colluding. If you have real eyewitnesses, you, grant, you gain perspective from each of them and develop a further picture. Last, uh, two Sundays ago, last week, Justin did a, great, did a great study on faithfulness. I loved it. But when we were in chapter 27, uh, Matthew mentioned the detail that when Jesus was buried, the Jewish leaders went and said, you need to put a guard by the grave because Jesus at one point claimed that he was going to rise from the dead after three days. So put a guard there so that his disciples don't come and steal the body. And so they put a guard. Now, I said two weeks ago that this became one of the most prominent evidences of the resurrection itself because there were actual guards how, and we'll see the continuation of it here, but why did only Matthew tell this story? Why didn't Mark talk about the guards? Why didn't Luke? Why didn't John? Um, I have a theory, and I'll share it with you in a bit. But anyway, chapter 27 ended with that, and so we pick up in chapter 28, where he says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary... There were several Marys, so uh, there were at least a couple of them that came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and is sitting there on it. And his countenance, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. 
And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The guards who were there to make sure that nothing funny happened witnessed the stone being rolled away, Jesus raising from the dead. They witnessed an angel that's glowing, lightning shooting off of him. They saw the whole thing. And so then it says that they were afraid and the angel began to talk to the women, ignored the guards. Don't be afraid. I know you seek Jesus. He isn't here. He's risen. Come and check it out where he was laying. Go tell the disciples he's risen from the dead and he's going to come and he'll meet up with them in Galilee. So they went away all excited. And verse 9, as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice, like nothing happened. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Think about that. All what things that had happened? Everything that happened up to that point. So you understand the guards saw the resurrection. They saw the angel. They saw the angel talking to the women. And incredibly, they saw Jesus talking to the women as well. And they go, we need to go report this. And I mean, this is shocking. This is such powerful evidence. And you think, how in the world could anyone in that day or in any day not believe in the resurrection, giving the testimony of these witnesses. But as you read on here, um, the Jewish leaders heard about it because the guards told them what had happened. And they said, look, tell the people that the disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if it gets to the governor, don't worry, you're not going to be in trouble. We'll pay him off too. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Wow. First of all, this is the stupidest alibi ever. What you need to do is tell them that you dozed off and the disciples came and took his body away. First of all, that's why you're there is because they're claiming that might happen. Secondly, if you were asleep, how do you know it was the disciples who came and took the body away? Thirdly, if you're a guard and you say you fell asleep, you will be killed. So this whole thing is so flimsy, and yet they paid off the Romans and go, like, don't worry. That means a lot of them knew that something happened. And again, it says that the guards came and reported all the things that had happened. So witnesses of the resurrection, the Roman guards, the Jewish leaders who were told about it, how much more evidence could you possibly want that Jesus had risen from the dead? Now the question comes up, this is so incredible, why didn't Mark talk about it? This is so incredible, why didn't Luke talk about it? This is so incredible, why didn't John talk about it? Well, let's think about that. Mark, his gospel was written because Peter told the story. So he told certain things about the resurrection, but Peter wasn't anywhere near when this happened. 
So he just left out the things that he wasn't a personal witness to. Um, John, again, wasn't there. So didn't, maybe didn't have that information, wasn't mixing it up with the Jews in the same way that Matthew was. So maybe he hadn't met these people. Now, how about Luke? Luke was the historian who interviewed everyone. Well, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which were really one book, were written as a legal document to take as evidence in Paul's trial in Rome. So it was directed toward Theophilus. It was directed toward the Romans. And you really, if you're telling this story to try to help Paul look okay, you really don't want to expose some of the corruption that was involved. And so he would have every reason to just go, and maybe even the one that told Matthew about it or a couple of them that told Matthew. I mean, you can get in big trouble for leaking this. So um, my theory is that one of these guards, perhaps, or even one of the Jewish leaders who ended up believing in Jesus and came and coughed up the truth about this whole thing, and that's why Matthew knew about it. And maybe that's why the others didn't, or maybe they don't want to get him in trouble, and so they don't talk about it. But Matthew puts it out there in such a degree that he says to the Jews, just ask around. Anybody who was there, this deal was so phony and so obvious that it establishes that Jesus rose from the dead. So pretty cool. You know, you don't need more evidence than this to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, which is central to our faith. But then we come to the rest of the chapter is what we call typically the Great Commission. It's Jesus speaking to them when they're in Galilee right before he is going to ascend into heaven. Jesus giving them their marching orders. And this is a great passage of scripture as beginning in verse 16 the disciples went to Galilee Jesus had told them to meet them at a mountain and they worshipped him but some doubted I think that's interesting some people would say they're referring to Thomas who doubted but when Thomas expressed his doubt it was still back in Jerusalem so um, there may have been people he's, he's talking about some doubted not one and so Maybe there were still, the disciples were like, I don't know. This is kind of weird. I'm not sure what to believe. You know, God never gets upset with people who have doubts. In fact, I think he's probably more upset by people who never have doubts. Because people who don't have doubts aren't thinking critically. They're just swallowing something hook, line, and sinker. Uh, I get in this discussion with people a lot where they, they somehow get the idea that faith means that you don't doubt. When the truth is, as a definition of faith, it's just the opposite of that. Faith presupposes doubt, and it says, even though you're smart, rational enough to have doubts, yet you're choosing to believe and move forward anyway. So personally, I wonder about people who never have doubts. I think they're in denial. But some of them doubted. And then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, and this is what is typically quoted as the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. On the basis of that, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age 
And then Matthew supplies, amen. The Great Commission. Now, a lot of times people quote this as if this is the marching orders of the church, and it certainly is, but what's interesting is this Great Commission is not repeated in the other Gospels. The other Gospels give a different version of what God was telling them to do. For instance, in Mark 16, his, as he met with the disciples, he didn't say, go make disciples. He said, preach the gospel to every creature. So, and then he went, in Mark 16, he goes on and says some other stuff too. Now, in Luke slash Acts, it comes in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, he said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a different twist. Witness about what has happened and what you've experienced from me. John doesn't really give a commission from Jesus to all the disciples. The closest thing John does to this is it shows when Jesus met with Peter along the seashore, and he said, if you love me, you will take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, take care of them. And so, you know, John's perspective was much more personal than that. But that's all different than what Matthew has Jesus saying here about making disciples. Being a disciple isn't like a particular program that you sign up for. There are people who take this word discipleship, and they've made it into well, it's pretty much how all cults start out. It's the idea of, I'm going to make you a disciple of me. I have followed others, and therefore, you follow me, and I can reproduce me as I am reproducing Jesus or Chuck Smith or J. Vernon McGee or whoever else discipled me. Now I am going to disciple you. But in this verse, this word make disciples is not in the present tense. That is, it's not a continuous calling at all. It's something in the Greek, the aorist tense teaches you that this is a one-time thing. This is seen as, a, as an individual unit. When you're made a disciple, that's who you are. It defines you. And in fact, there isn't anything in the scripture that would even begin to support the idea that you need to disciple other people as a process and you know, orient them to everything that you know so then they can do that. You know, Christianity, people treat it like it's a multi-level marketing scam. And it really isn't. This command was make them students. Tell, let them know that this calling by Jesus is a calling to become educated, to understand. And it's interesting that through the rest of the book of Acts, the disciples are still called the disciples, the same word, mathetuo. Now, what's also interesting is, uh, first of all, if, if this is a student, then why would they still be called disciples after they are the ones who are actually leading the way? Because ultimately, they were called as students and they remained as students for the rest of their lives. That's what Jesus is actually saying. And so for each of us, we have to understand the calling to Jesus is a calling to submit yourself to being educated, and that doesn't end. You don't graduate. 
What's interesting is this term for disciple, for people who say that all of Christianity should be about, we have discipleship programs and all that kind of stuff, I kind of laugh about that because discipleship is never mentioned in any of the rest of the New Testament other than the book of Acts and the Gospels. So if that was the main calling, what's going on? Well, in the rest of the Gospels, it words it in other ways and it exemplifies what it is that we do. But make no mistake about it, the calling of Jesus is a calling to enroll as a student and your day of learning will continue, hopefully, until Jesus comes back and receives you into heaven. That's your graduation. Before then, sorry, you're still a student. I'm a student. I learn stuff all the time. Now, sure, part of that is because I'm old and I forget stuff. But you know, I still, I, I, think of, I think of my life as an opportunity to continue to study, to continue to learn. So where do you learn? Well, he makes it kind of clear here. It's go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The word for nations there is ethnos. Other places it's translated foreigners. See, we are in a context whereby the best way that we can learn is to learn from people who come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different perspectives than we do. I learn more from talking with people who I disagree with than I can ever learn from people who are saying things that I already agree with. It's why, and I I don't like watching the news, I kind of try to find out what's going on in the world, but I'll learn more listening to some liberal commentator, I'll learn more listening to Jon Stewart or somebody like that than I do from Fox News where everyone agrees with me and makes me think, boy, we're smart and everyone else is stupid. See, the essence of education is to understand that you have things to learn, and the best way for you to learn it is from people who have a different perspective than you do. And when we become ethnocentric, that means that our people, the way we do things, that's what normal is. Normal is me. You do that, you're going to become more stupid. It happens every time. It's what's going on in our country, where there's such a division, and everybody on one side agrees with themselves, and everybody on the other side agrees with themselves, and the closest they have to agreeing with each other is each side thinks the other side is stupid. And that doesn't make for educated people. That makes for stupid people, okay? If you can find someone who believes differently than you, that's such an opportunity because you can listen to them. Think about it. Jesus came from heaven. He spent 30 of his 33 years studying humans. Even as he was in his ministry, he asked way more questions than answers. Then he gave answers. Why do you suppose that is? Because he wanted to understand what it is to be us. It's why he can be our high priest, as Paul points out in Hebrews. So what he's, and again, why would this be especially given to a Jewish audience? Because no one was more ethnocentric than the Jews. The Jews believe we're the chosen people and you guys are all created for hell. 
it's kind of like a Calvinist, but a different spin. Like, I don't care about anybody who doesn't. You know, it's just like us. We're the ones. We're the sp- and there are people who just think. Uh, I can remember people who thought anybody outside Calvary Chapel, probably not a Christian. You know? and, but the Jews were that way. And so did they want to learn from Gentiles? No, they thought they were disgusting. But the disciples, if they were going to do what Jesus had called them to do, they had to do what Jesus himself did and say, I want to learn. I will listen to you. Samaritans, I want to hear what you have to say. You know, you hyper-religious people, I'll hear what you have to say as well. I want to grow in my understanding because I'm a student. I'm just here to learn. I'm not just here to try to convince other people. The disciples had to get that across or the mission. I mean, when he says in Mark, go preach the gospel to every nation, how are you going to do that if you don't have a spirit of actually coming in and learning what it's like to be somebody like that? For instance, you know, for a lot of times, for missionaries, they used to just think, we just go in there and teach them to be Americans, give them all the cool clothes and everything, and, and then they'll become Christians. But that wasn't the way Jesus designed it. It's not the way he did it. And in fact, in the first century church, as it exploded across Europe, where did it explode? Not among the Jews. It exploded among the Gentiles. And so you have a guy like Paul who was as ethnocentric as they came. He was so into Judaism, his whole education was purely Jewish. And his whole perspective was that, so much so that he hated Christians and wanted to kill them until he met Jesus and it changed everything. And then he figured out, you know what? If I'm talking to a Jew, I can easily relate to them as a Jew. But he goes, man, when I'm talking to the Romans, I'm going to talk like a Roman. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. The more we become locked in to who we are and less interested in who someone else is, the more weak we become in spreading the truth of the gospel. And this only happens if you decide I'm still in school. I am still learning. I am a disciple. I am a student. And I don't ever want to get to the point where I'm not a student. And so he lays this out for him. It's especially here in Matthew because nobody needed to learn this more than, than the Jews did. And so he goes, you guys, you're all Jewish, but you better understand your calling is to the ethnos, is to the people who see things differently than you are. And you better become a student of them if you're ever going to do what I'm calling you to do. And so... He says that make disciples, make students of all the the ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So bringing them into the church, for them, their perspective was always, the way you become a Christian, the way you get into the church, is by identifying with, with Jesus, with God, through baptism. So he goes, baptize all of them. Don't make them become Jewish. And unfortunately, some of the people didn't get this, and later the church argued whether you could become a Christian without first becoming a Jew. What's interesting is that at that church council in in Acts 15, Peter finally stood up. He was the apostle to the Jews, 
But he stood up and he told them about what had happened in Acts chapter 10. And he goes, you know what? I thought just like you until God appeared to me and called me to follow these guys and go to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. And he goes, amazing, man. They're all Gentiles. I had never been in a Gentile's house in my life. And it was disgusting until the Holy Spirit came on them. And I'm like, they received the testimony of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came on them just like he did on us. And so Peter goes, I think you ought to get over this whole, you need to become like us in order to become a Christian. It's not the way God is working. And in fact, obviously, there were more people getting saved who were Gentiles than Jews. How was that? Because of people like Peter and like Paul who were willing to to set aside their own cultural bias so that they could connect with and welcome and embrace somebody who had a different perspective to be a student of them. When Paul was, was doing his ministry before he got thrown in prison, it would talk about him when he was in the marketplace selling tents. But he would be talking to the, to the Greek, the Stoic, Epicurean philosophers and people like that, learning about them. So that when he had his chance to get up in Athens and speak at the Acropolis, he was able to give them a message that they were like, whoa, where did this come from? I thought we'd get some Jewish spiel, and he is speaking intelligently. Why? Because he was always a student of everyone around him. That's what Jesus was calling them to do. And that's what opens the door to ushering someone in. I I mean, I think about the Jesus movement. And again, I'm not nostalgic. I'm not trying to bring back the Jesus movement. I'm not going to buy an old Volkswagen van or try to grow my hair out or wear bell-bottom jeans. But what happened in the Jesus movement for a few years was like people were like, wow, these guys are hippies like us. And they believe in Jesus. And it seems compatible with who we are. They adapted. And the funny thing is, in the Jesus movement, a lot of the Christians that were out there witnessing weren't hippies who got converted. Like, a lot of the adults didn't like the Jesus movement because their kids who were good little Baptists are now, like, dressing like hippies. And they're like, no, you know, we don't want to be like them. And look what God did as they adapted and became a part of their culture. This is what happened. Education is so important. It's one of the greatest blessings that we have to be able to connect with other people. Now, historically, in America, we have been a people who promote education, who embrace cultural differences. It's why most of the major universities in the history of our country were started by Christians as a way of reaching the culture. Now, you know, there were exceptions, like Jefferson started the University of Virginia just to make it secular. But he was copying what the Christians were doing. Well, it also used to be that Christians were the scientists, the composers, the painters, the sculptors. In every way, they wanted to engage in culture so that they could build a bridge of the gospel. And that was powerful. It was, it was effective. It spread the gospel because we were a people that liked studying people who are different than we are and engaging in education. And I really don't believe... Now, in the last 50 years or so, 
the American church has become more anti-education. It's like, no, we, we just need our own schools or we need homeschool. We're going to do whatever we can do to protect everybody from, oh, the godless evil education. I understand that. But you don't change the world that way by getting in a bunker and protecting yourself. It's not what we're here to do. We are students. And we need, once again, for Christians to engage in the educational process so that they can provide influence. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. And in fact, that's what his disciples did throughout history. Now, when you talk about American history, what made America what it is? We were the one place in the world that kind of didn't have a big local history, except for the Indians who we slaughtered. But then here we are, and this was a place where Italians and Germans, people who were being persecuted for their religion, they were able to come. Go to the Statue of Liberty in the harbor in New York and read the plaque that, that the French put on that when they gifted us with the Statue of Liberty. They understood. America is a place where people who are rejected other places can come and be accepted. And that's, frankly, what made America great, was our embracing of those differences. And you could argue with me, and I'll listen to you, but um, I'll listen. But, <laughs> but ultimately, that was the one thing that there's no other country in the world that was quite that way. And it was a perfect opportunity for people to come here and find Jesus. And that's why we were known by many as a Christian nation, because we were a nation who embraced people who were different. And that's the mission of Jesus. Now, you might go, well, did the disciples do that? Well, think about this. The disciples were pretty ethnocentric. They were all Jews, mostly lower class, other than Matthew, who was a, an accountant. Most of them weren't. Now, read the gospel, for instance, of John, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, written by, I believe, John, the disciple of Jesus. Most Bible critics will tell you there's no way John, that was a disciple of Jesus, could have written those books. And you go, why? And they say, they are written in the highest form of Greek that there is. When John's a fisherman, he wasn't speaking Greek. He was speaking a mixture of Aramaic and probably Hebrew. Maybe he knew a little Greek. But if you take a Greek class in seminary, they'll almost always take you to 1 John first because it's so fundamentally structured in a way that's an awesome understanding and comprehension of the Greek language. Now, you could say, and no way John wrote it, or you could say, John was in his 30s when Jesus died and gave this commandment. And he didn't write those books for another 40 years. I wonder if he was a student. I wonder if he learned enough. In this, and and I, I, to me, I think, no, he understood. Be a student make other people students. And so he studied that which he would need in order to communicate the truth of Jesus Christ. And I might say, he did it very effectively. Anybody who's ever quoted John 3.16, that came because somebody really understood the language that wasn't the language they were born with. Um, I think of Paul. Look what he did in writing 14 books of the New Testament. And 
planting churches all across Europe with almost all Gentiles. How in the world did a guy do that who was raised one of the strictest, most ethnocentric Jews that there could possibly be? He was so Jewish, he hated anybody who wasn't, and he wanted to destroy them. He had a great education under Gamaliel, but that was a fundamental Jewish education. So how did he get to the point where he was able to communicate powerfully in Athens with those Greek uh, philosophers and scholars, the smartest people in the world today? In fact, you know, there's a guy, Seneca, who you might not know about. He, he died back in 63 AD. Seneca, in my mind, I've read so much of his stuff, maybe one of the smartest people who ever lived. But he was a Stoic philosopher. He was a leader among Stoicism. Stoicism is still very you know, powerfully rampant today with anyone who's philosophical at all. But he, what he writes is brilliant stuff. But first of all, when you read him and then you read John chapter 1, you realize the Gospel of John in the beginning was the Logos. That is classic Stoicism. They're the ones who developed the use of the word logos that, that we translate word as being a reference to everything that there is. It all comes back to the logos. The Gospel of John, especially the first chapter, is like addressed to Stoics. Again, how did John know Stoicism? But Paul, who we know interacted with Stoics a lot, in his writings, you see the influence of their philosophies throughout it. Now, what's interesting is Seneca, who I said he died in 63 AD. Um, you know when Paul died? 63 AD. In the same city. Now, okay, interesting coincidence. Well, by the way, Seneca, was, because he was the smartest man in early Greece, the parents of Nero hired Seneca to tutor him. And then he was the main advisor to Nero, which was a real challenge because Nero was a real nut. But in 63 AD, Nero ordered uh, the execution of Seneca. And Seneca just goes, no, you don't have to kill me. I'll kill myself. And he drank some poison and died. Kind of like Jesus saying, you didn't kill me. I gave myself up. So Paul and Seneca dying about the same time, you read Paul's writings, you see this influence, you see, you read Seneca, and you see influences that seem to be coming from Paul. And in the library of the great Seneca, they found letters ostensibly between Paul and Seneca communicating back and forth. Now, a lot of scholars will say, oh, those are forgeries, they just, they thought it would be interesting to take the ideas of both and put them together. Well, what if? What if Paul is in Rome and he's like, I'm going, to commun- I'm going to write a letter to the smartest guy in Rome who has influence at the top levels of government. He's the top advisor. And it could be that their interactions back and forth made a difference for Seneca, so he wasn't afraid to die, but also influenced the fact that they would both die about the same time. Speculation, okay, but it's interesting because the truth is The guys who changed the world for Jesus were students all the way. And they were those who reached across cultural barriers in order to do it. 
And if we think that we are a disciple of Jesus, but we're actually not learning anything from people of other cultures, we don't understand the great commission here. And then when he goes on and says, you know, include them into the church, baptize them. And then he says, finally, in verse 20, teaching them. Now, a lot of times we think of discipleship as teaching. But discipleship, in this case, is a commitment to be a student. But then he says, here's curriculum. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So you go back in the Gospels. How many things did Jesus actually command? I think a lot of people think of Christianity as a calling to tell people what they're supposed to do and not do. We love that part of it. We love that religious part where we make the rules for everyone else. Growing up in a conservative Christian background, if I thought of commandments, I'm like, I know. God said, you can't cuss. Like, well, those are words. They're symbols. Why, why would God... Jesus used words that they would consider cussing at the time. But oh no, that's a big one. You also can't smoke. That's Christians can't smoke. I always say, I, to me, you can smoke and still go to heaven. You'll get there sooner. But... <laughs> And I don't smoke, but I'm not going to say, that's the commandment of God. Uh, Drinking. Well, you have a problem because Jesus changed water into wine. Um, You have a problem in the fact that the Bible says like 80 times more good things than bad things about wine. But again, I'm not defending myself. I don't drink. I haven't had a drink in many years, but it's just because I've watched too many people die from the stuff. I, I hate it myself. But is that what it is to be a Christian? To not drink? Uh, we also couldn't dance. You know? Now, I know like at Calvary we could never have dances. Now they have dances. So God loosened up on that one. But <laughs> I'm sure there are rules about how you can dance and what you can do. I mean, this is the part of Christianity that we're really comfortable with. Telling people what to do. Is that what Jesus is saying? Give them the rules. Well, you read through Jesus, and he has clearly what he has in mind here. Something that he had shared with them. You can read about it in John 15. He had said it a few days before this. He said, I am giving you one commandment, a new commandment. Love each other. If you do this, Your joy is full. If you do this, people will know who I am. My commandment is that you love, period. That's the rule. Um, Earlier, he had said to the Jews, look, take the whole law, all of those commandments, just comes down to love God and love people. Let's make it simple. Jesus made it even simpler. One commandment, be loving. Now, how does this fit with what he's commissioning them with here? I would suggest to you that it's easy to love people who are just like you. Um, Because you know they aren't quite as good as you, but they're like you and they support you. Um, But loving people who are different than you, that's challenging. In fact, it's miraculous when that happens. And so if, in fact, we're going to school as disciples of Jesus, and he goes, 
Okay, we have one thing on the agenda. You go to people who are different than you are, come from different cultural backgrounds, different perspectives, they have different opinions, and you show them what love looks like. That is more powerful than any argument that you'll ever come up with. It's super powerful, and it's what Jesus is saying in the end, this is what you need to do. So his commission to them, tell people to be students for the rest of their life. Tell them to be students and to reach across cultural barriers because that's where the rubber meets the road. And as they incorporate new believers into the church and accept them as their brothers and sisters, then make sure that you're teaching them that there's one rule here that we live by the law of love. Love for Jesus, love for God, love for his people. That's the commandment that we want to drive home all the time. That's what you should be known for. And he, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he made it clear, Lord, please make them one so that the world will know that you've sent me. His credibility depends on whether we get this right. And I don't know if we always get it right. I'm sure we don't. So that's his commission. Now, as I consider, certainly all the commissions that Jesus gave are important. So if I think about the four Gospels, I go, Mark, preach the Gospel, is what he says that Jesus said. I think we do that pretty well. I think the Word gets out. I do it every Sunday. I let people know, hey, Jesus died for you. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He rose from the dead, and he can give you eternal life. I just did it. See, that fulfills the Great Commission in Mark 16. Now, in Luke slash Acts you will be my witnesses. I think we do a pretty decent job of that. As we get to know people, we share with them our stories a little bit, we talk about what God has done for us. I hope you do. But that's something that I think, you know, we're always reminded of it and we try to do it best we can. And then the Gospel of John, even as Jesus talking to Peter, tend my sheep, take care of my people. I think the church does a pretty good job of taking care of its own and, you know, ministering to them, children's ministry and the youth stuff and senior stuff. And everything that we do is kind of fulfilling that part of the commission. But are we really understanding the importance of education, of those who have different cultural perspectives? They're different ethnos than we are. And I think this is something where we often fall off in a bad way. And so I think we should take this to heart as we close this gospel and just remind ourselves, today, what can I learn? I'm a student. What do you say about a student that doesn't learn anything? I don't want to be that person. Now, many of us, you get burned out and you're like, okay, maybe I go... Uh, maybe you go, in the last year, I don't know if I've learned anything meaningful. Well, you want to learn something meaningful, talk with somebody who disagrees with you. Let them see that people who believe the way you do aren't just stupid and that they're loving and that they value what they have to contribute. That's the commission. And if we do that, we are fulfilling that which Jesus calls us to do. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your example of studying humans for 30 years before you even opened your mouth with a message. Help us this week to not just listen to stuff that makes us think we're smart. Help us to listen and try to understand why in the world somebody believes what they believe. Because that will open the door for us to learn to not fall back on the old, well, anybody who disagrees with me is just wrong and stupid. Lord, help us to remember we are here on this planet as disciples until you call us home, and that's our graduation. Help us to look at people who have differences from us, whatever, whether it's religious differences or cultural, racial, age differences, geographical differences. Help us to embrace that as a great opportunity. And God, I pray that we would be people who always are in support of the educational process. You really are the one who invented and opened this up to your disciples. Your disciples became so much more educated after they graduated to become students for the rest of their lives. Lord, and I know how proud you must have been of these guys bunch of fishermen who instead in their desire to catch men and women that they went to school. I pray that everyone who's in here who's involved in any way in education would feel the understanding that what they're doing is an amazing and noble thing to do and a a central focus that letting people be students is what discipleship really is. May we always continue on that path. Give us a love and a compassion for people who see things differently than we do. Thank you that you did that for each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.